Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 145. I'm going to be getting there in a little bit. Um, I want to just say a couple of things about the two services that are coming up starting next week. And uh, this doesn't count as part of my sermon time. Um, why, why are we going to two services? You know, as long as I've been here, which is going on 12 years now, I have dreamed of going to two services. Um, dreamed of going to two services because we were growing so much that we couldn't all fit into one service. Now we're going to two services so we can accommodate less people than we normally have on a Sunday morning. Um, and so there's been a few times where I've been laying in bed going, what are you doing? Is this the right thing to do? What do we do? So why, why, are, we, why are we doing this? Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he placed Adam and Eve in a perfect environment, the garden, and he called them to be co-heirs with him in ruling the earth and spreading out and growing the kingdom of God all throughout the earth. And it was a perfect environment. But as most of you know, in chapter three, they were uh, tempted um, to go against God's rule and say, we're gonna do this on our own. We're gonna define good and evil on our own. And ever since then, we've been living in this upside down world. And we're waiting for the kingdom of God to come, which is what we're gonna talk about today, and put all things right. And in the midst of what we are going through in 2020, we're living through what in some ways spiritually is a perfect storm. We have been, because of a pandemic, separated relationally. We are not as close to our family as we normally are. We are not as close to our support group in the church as we normally are. And then we've been going through a lot of political and racial unrest in our nation. And in God's grace, we have this thing called the internet that's allowing us to keep having church services online, which is really cool. But then there's been this other thing that's been created called social media in which people are attacking each other. And some of you aren't experiencing that and praise God for you. But other people are watching people that love each other or claim to love each other and used to be in relationship with each other attack one another. And there's something about seeing somebody's face on a regular basis that puts the human element back in what we're doing. And so we are meeting together not because you can't stay at home and worship, and if you're not comfortable coming back to church, we are saying amen to that, you can stay home. But we are coming back to worship in a difficult way, challenging the pastors, doubling our work for less people, so that we could look each other in the eye and say this, even if it's six feet apart, this is the family of God. And in this community, I will seek to glorify God. So that's why we're doing it. And so we want to invite you to come along. And look, we're talking about prayer. Uh, I think it's a good topic for where we're, we're at right now. And I don't know, uh, statistics say, I'm jumping into the sermon now, statistics say a large portion of the population prays. In fact, it's up over 80, 90% people who will say, I pray daily. And I grew up in the church. 
And I, I can remember being told to pray. I can remember hearing people pray, but I don't remember anybody ever saying, this is how you pray. And so I would imagine some of you had the same experience, and I would imagine your prayers sound very different than my prayers. And there's nothing wrong with that. But one of the things the disciples recognized when they came encounter with Jesus Christ is that he prayed really good. They, they never asked Jesus, teach us how to preach. We never see the disciples even saying, teach me how to heal, even though they did that. But the one thing they asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And I think it's something we can all grow on. And so as I'm looking at this topic, for me, I'm trying to go back to the real basics. What does it really look like to pray? And so last week, we were, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, where it says, uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay? We talked about last week what that term means, because it's kind of a weird one. We say it, if you grew up in the church, if you've learned that, but maybe you don't know what it means. So we looked at hallowed be your name. Today, your kingdom come. Next week, your will be done. And we're going to just kind of walk through these. And last week, I used this outline. I'm going to use the same outline this week. What does it mean? Why does it matter? And then how do we do it? We're going to look at a sample in the Psalms. As a church, Rich and I, back before all this stuff happened, and the elders worked through what we were calling some operating principles. And as we look forward to coming out of the the assessment and how do we improve things, we said, here's some things that we want to constantly operate under these assumptions. And one of them was this. I'm going to read it to you. We operate on the belief that prayer moves mountains. Okay, a little Christian cliche there, right? God, Jesus said, if you have faith, you can move mountains. So we're saying, as a church, we believe that prayer changes things that God moves through the prayers of his people. And we further define that by saying this, and, and, and hear this, because this is really important. We believe God is still working in the world around us. Let me just say that again. We're still here. And so we are living under the assumption that if we're still here, God has something for us to do. And if God has something for us to do, then we believe God is still working in the world around us. And I'm just telling you, whatever you're looking at in the news, and I see some of my friends already saying, this is it, we're living in the end. Look, if we're still here, God is still working. We believe that God is still working in the world around us to bring about his kingdom and that he works through the prayers of his people to do miraculous things. So we're jumping into this idea of prayer. We've added some prayer times at four o'clock on Sundays where we are praying for discomfort. And what I mean by that is we're looking at the world around us and we're asking God, what do you want us to do in the world that we live in, Hillsborough, Oregon, on the corner of 2nd and Lincoln? So, your kingdom come. What does it mean? Um, it's actually quite confusing. Uh, 
There's a lot of confusion around this term. And so let me just address some of the confusion. It is most often seen as something that is with the future in mind. In other words, we look at the world around us and we go, oh gosh, I'm sick of this. Your kingdom come. Like God, just come, just you know, take us away. I remember when I, when I was younger, there was a, a commercial where this kids are all running around and it's all chaotic. And the mom says, what was it Cal- 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 take me away with some sort of like bath soap or something. I can't remember. You know, like take me, that's kind of what we think of as kingdom come. Like get me out of this. Now Jesus addressed this question. He said in Mark uh, chapter one, now after John was arrested, here's the setting, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So when, did Jesus view the kingdom as something present or something future? Seems very present there. Some have said, and I grew up with the understanding that the kingdom of God was just in the heart. That it wasn't an outwardly thing, it was an inwardly thing. And it's based on a misinterpretation, I believe, or uh, of this verse in Luke chapter 17 that says this. Being asked of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And some older translations said this, the kingdom of God is within you. And so I was taught growing up that the kingdom of God was something internal. But you have to look at the context there. Who's Jesus speaking to? The Pharisees. He is not saying to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is in you. That would be totally contrary to what he has said in every other place. So that is not the correct interpretation. What he is saying is to the Pharisees, here's the kingdom of God. It's right here in your midst. Look. Another confusion is that it's just been seen simply in the idea of physical deliverance. In other words, we look at things or tend to look at things as either spiritual or physical. And we might be in a situation and some of our older hymns and songs talk about the physical deliverance, whether it's from pain or uh, oppression or whatever it is. And when that kingdom comes, then there'll be physical deliverance. And because people look at it either as physical or spiritual, then some people just see it as spiritual deliverance. That the kingdom of God is simply repenting and asking Jesus into your heart, and then you're part of the kingdom of God. And today, we start to see the term being thrown around in political ways. Now, so I said here, I threw out a lot of things here. And I said, these are the confusions. When people say kingdom of God, all these images kind of come into place, depending on where you're at, or maybe you don't even know what that means. And so what is Jesus saying when he says, I want you to pray your kingdom come? 
He wasn't just trying to give us a phrase. He's trying to give us an idea, a theme, something that we can work through. So let's have some clarity on what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. How's that for clarity? The kingdom of God is both now, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, and yet he very much told that there was a a kingdom that was coming that is going to look very different. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's, it's big. It's something that is now and not yet. When we think of kingdom, I think a great definition I came across is this. It's the king's power. And just notice in this definition, K is capitalized, okay? Uh, It's on purpose. We're talking about the king, king of kings, lord of lords, the great almighty God, the king. When we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. If you're going to have to have if you're going to have a kingdom, most kingdoms have what? borders. So what's the place of God's kingdom? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's all his. Now we are very clear from scripture that that kingdom is under attack. That there is a fight for who controls that kingdom. In the garden, it's a serpent and God. We flesh that out. We see Satan, the power uh, of this uh, spirit of this world, and Jesus. There's this battle that is going on for this kingdom, but its borders, it's, it's all of us. It's the, it's the world. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the, king, the king's power through his people that are living in this kingdom. In fact, some of Jesus' parables were very much like this. You know, this person sets up this farm and then he goes away and people come in and they're running it badly and then the king comes back and he sends his son or, you know, a king went away. for All these things are about this, what happens in this field or this farm or this kingdom while the king is away? And usually the parable has something to do about the people who were in charge aren't living according to the king's principles because he's not looking anymore. But the problem is, God is looking. God does know. So it's the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. We're praying, God, I'm praying for your power through your people in whatever situation you're going through. That's thy kingdom come. Um, one, of a, one of the old commentators uh, his name is, is Philip Keller, and I was introduced to him. Um, he actually grew up in Kenya, and uh, uh, he is long past. And he, uh, he wrote this great book. He was a, a shepherd. He had, had sheep. And so he wrote this great little book called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. And it was, became really famous. He, this book, uh, he is actually, uh, it was something, look at the Lord's Prayer. And he wrote this about the kingdom of God. This was his sample prayer. You, O God, our Father, who art the ruler of heaven and earth, 
whose authority is utterly paramount throughout the universe. Now, he's speaking some older English here, but he is saying, God, you're, you're the ruler. Your authority is over everything. And then he says, come and establish your sovereignty. And here he means rule. Come and establish your rule in our hearts, that's now, and eventually upon the earth itself. That's not yet. And he didn't use the, the now and not yet. I put that in there, but you can see that actually in his prayer. Rule in our hearts and then bring your future rule to come to pass. When we pray your kingdom come, it recognizes a few things. Um, we are seeking God. We are seeing God's position, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. When we say your kingdom, we are recognizing him as king. He's to be glorified. He's in charge. We're going to see that in Psalm 145. We are recognizing his position. And I, I think today, more than ever, we need to be reminded of this. Um, when I was you know, saying earlier, all the stuff that's going on with stuff going on in social media and things like that, I, I sometimes feel like as a pastor, I'm kind of losing my footing. I feel like, man, how do we speak into this situation? Do I get involved in that social media rant over there? Do I not? And one person wrote an article this week that was just, it was so refreshing to me. And he said, Pastor, here's what, here's what you're struggling with. You get everybody for one hour. Fox News gets them for seven plus hours. Or CNN gets them for... In other words, we're listening to a lot of different people and, and somehow other things are getting priority over God's word. Not me but over God's word. So we recognize God's position. Then we are seeking God's power today. How is your rule going to come to play on this situation that I am facing or that we are facing? We see God's position. We are seeking God's power. And ultimately what we are trying to do is submit to God's principles. So we put all the other stuff, and, and here's why we need to spend time in God's word on a regular basis, because this, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, has to be the goggles, the, the glasses, in which I see every situation. So I, I'm not looking for somebody to tell me how to think about it. I am looking at it and thinking through this lens. I want your principles to come to play on this situation. I recognize your kingdom is not quite here fully, but I am going to operate as if it were. Because my allegiance is to a kingdom that is coming. Now picture that in a, in a story, if you will. A king has ruled for a period of time. He gets called off to war. And then there's some strife around the castle. People come in and they start taking charge. 
They start doing bad things. They start thinking to themselves, I think the king probably was killed out there. I don't think he's coming back. So you all should listen to me now. And the kingdom changes and people kind of, they don't, they don't want to be left out. So they, they follow this new ruler, whoever it is, who's declared himself king. Maybe it's the king's brother or whatever. And they're following him. But there's a group of people in the village that are like, no, we're loyal to the king. Now, you can kind of picture that. There's been movies made like this. But what you need to picture is what happens when the actual king comes back. He knows. He can tell who's been faithful. So this prayer recognizes God's position. It seeks God's power today. And it submits to God's principles. Why does it matter? Uh, There's a great article by uh, Eric Raymond Uh, on the Lord's Prayer, and uh, he had three points, and I I just really loved them. I'm going to borrow them and kind of step off them here just real quick. He says, um, it it is a cry, the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, is a cry of loyalty. That's what I was just saying in that, that little parable. When I pray your kingdom come, I'm saying I am loyal to the king who is not here right now. And may my attitudes, listen to this, When I pray, my kingdom come, what I'm saying is, may my attitudes be in line with your kingdom. May our words be in line with your kingdom. When people look at the church, when people see you as Christians who go to a church, and you say something on social media, in your neighborhood, This is what they think. That's what the church believes. And so be careful that you are representing the right kingdom. May our loves be in line with your kingdom. May our politics be in line with your kingdom. May our passions be in line with your kingdom. It's a cry of loyalty. And then second, and hear me out here, it's a cry of treason. What am I saying when I say your kingdom come? I'm saying, God, your kingdom, may it come and overtake the kingdoms that are here. That's a cry of treason. Please don't misunderstand me and don't be mistaken. When Jesus comes, he is not going to come and put a certain political party into power. He isn't going to come and say, all right, Thank you, political party A. You have remained, he is going to drive both of those out. And I've read the end of the story. It's not a republic in the end. There's a king. He makes the rules. So it's a cry for treason. It's like, just knock all this stuff out. So in a sense, it's a cry for conquering. But don't even think about it on a national level. When we pray your kingdom come, I want God to conquer my heart. I want God to to make a change in my heart. Because I recognize that my life is not always in line with God's kingdom. I'm asking God to conquer my family. Maybe your family has it all together, but most families still need some kingdom coming 
They still need some changes in attitudes. Their focuses are not quite right. When I say a cry for conquering, I'm talking about my neighborhood. We're talking about the corner of 2nd and Lincoln, about this community needs to see the kingdom of God. Now, let me just pause for a second. What will it look like when Jesus returns? I'm not going to get into a chart here. You guys know me. I'm not going to spell that out for you. Let's just jump to the end. Jesus returns. I believe there's going to be three responses. And I want you to think for a moment. Which group am I in? In fact, you might even pray, God, help me to see which group I would be in. Jesus returns. Some will run to him. That's my king. I am ready to greet him. I want to be with him. A second group are going to run and hide from him. Now, I'm not actually making this up. This is actually from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And it says this, And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, okay, we're talking about his return. So that when he appears, we may have confidence here, run to him and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He's talking to the church. And he is saying that some of you when you hear the trumpet blow and you look up whatever that's going to look like, I don't know, I've imagined it a hundred different ways. And you see Jesus coming, you're going to go, oh, I really should not be doing what I'm doing. I have not been living his kingdom come. I am not ready to face him. And what do you do? You shrink away. And the third group is going to run from him completely. Those who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, when he returns, they are going to run. I really appreciate this picture. We sometimes struggle with the idea of Jesus' judgment. And I just want to say that when Jesus comes, it's not going to be like a lot of people going, Oh, I wish I would have accepted him. I wish I would have gone to church. I wish I... they're going to be like, oh, I want nothing to do with him. And they're just going to run. He's going to catch them, but they're going to run. Which group are you in? Are you running to him? Are you running, running to hide because you're not dealing with your stuff? Or are you running away from him? Psalm 145, I got to go quick. Here's a sample of this prayer. It says this, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is 
unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works and kind in all of his works. Excuse me, the Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praises of the Lord and let the flesh bless his holy name. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever. This is, I think, a really good example of what it means to pray your kingdom come. And I'm going to go through this fairly quickly, but if you look at Psalm 145, it's it's a song of praise of David. That's the uh, title there, that's part of the inspired word of God. And then if you notice verse one, David says this, I will extol you, my God and my king. And this is not surprising for us to hear this, for us to hear David pray that. But it is actually unusual for a king to pray this way. David is the king. David's the king of Israel. But he acknowledges there is a king greater than him. And the other kings, other nation kings, didn't pray that way. They saw themselves as God's representative. And they had people pray and praise them. Think of the king of Babylon. So David recognizes and he puts God's kingdom in its proper place. And the prayer of thy kingdom come is really trying to put God's kingdom in its proper place and think through those lenses. So verses one and two uh, are kind of this introductory of putting uh, God's kingdom in its proper place. And then it looks like this. In verses three through seven, David focuses on the greatness of God. God is great. Uh, Great is the Lord, verse three, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. He is great, and he is so great that we couldn't even find all of his great. We couldn't even figure it all out. I mean, you're just, you're great, and then there's this greatness that we don't even know yet. It's unsearchable. And so the result of that, because of God's greatness, he says, you are 
greatly to be praised. You're worthy of our praise. When we put God in the right place, he's worthy of our praise. And then he's worthy of our testimony. Interesting, he says, God is great. And he says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Now think about this again in, in lieu of, and the idea of that David is the one saying this. David's the one that united the kingdoms. David's the one at the height of David's kingdom and Solomon, they are as strong as a nation as they ever will be. And I mean, you could, you could write of David's rule and the people he conquered. And what does he say? Your testimony will be told generation to generation. Not my testimony, not what I did, but what you did. That's what God's greatness does. We tell other people of God's greatness. It's worthy of our meditation on your glorious splendor and your majesty, on your wondrous works, I will meditate. We just keep thinking about it. He's so great. It's worthy of our declaration. They shall speak of your mighty works. It's worthy of our worship. We continue to sing about it, pour forth. This idea of telling it to the other generation, both in verse four, one generation shall commend the other, And then also in verse 12, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and your glorious splendor. When we talk about God's kingdom, when we put God in his proper place, what ends up happening is that's what we tell to the next generation. When we take God out of that place, what we end up telling the next generation is what we did. And you know what? (laughs) Maybe you don't. But when I'm telling about what I did, I have a tendency to forget some of the sidelines I took. When I tell my kids about the stuff that dad did, I might leave out some of the things. It's not right for kids to hear those stories. And what ends up happening is my kids, they, they're, you know, I have older kids now, they're completely over this. But our kids might think we're something that we are not. See, now my family reunions and Thanksgivings and Christmas sound like my kids telling all the stories of things that they, what we did wrong. So I'm tired of hearing these stories. Parents, I'm just telling you with younger kids, you have a whole nother season of life that's coming. But when we put God in his proper place, we can't stop talking about how great he is. And in the end, parents, Do you really want your kids to know how great you are or how great God is? And the more I confess my shortcomings and receive God's grace, the more I extol the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God is gracious. Um, He goes on in verses 8 through 13. And, and he says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And what we see here is we, uh, we have a quote from Exodus. And so what we see here is God's graciousness is seen in his name. That, Moses is like, who are you? And he said, this is part of his definition of who I am. Well, 
let me tell you who I am. And we, we learn who God is, this name of God, by looking at his character. Who I am is gracious. Now, we've just kind of tried to keep things simple here uh, at Hillsborough First Baptist Church. And so we use these two terms, grace and mercy, okay, that we hear in the Bible. And so quite simply, mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Okay, you deserve punishment. God is merciful. Grace is when we get stuff we don't deserve. When God blesses us in certain ways. When he forgives us, when he restores us. We don't deserve that. And so that's who God is. In fact, look down at a few verses. uh, Verse 14, this is going to be under God's faithfulness, but look at this. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up those who are bowed down. That's grace. The eyes of all who look on you and give them their food and seasons and open your hand. This is, this is all about who God is in his name and his character and, and finally his actions, what he does. That's how we discover God's graciousness. What does this have to do with the kingdom come? When we put God in his proper place and we see him as being great and gracious it motivates us and directs us on how we are to live in this kingdom. Okay, now in this section, uh, verses uh, 10 through 13, we have all this kind of talk about your kingdom. Verse 11, they'll speak of the glory of your kingdom. Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. This kingdom is all through the grace of God. And we're going to come back to that in just a second. Now, it's an interesting little thing in your Bible, just the Bible nerd part of me needs to talk about this. If you look at verse 13 uh, in your Bibles, um, I may have read something that's not in your Bibles, or there's something in your Bibles that's in brackets. Okay, it just depends on your translation. So verse 13, your kingdom's an everlasting kingdom, your dominion endures throughout all generations. And then my Bible has a bracket With these words, the Lord is faithful in all of his words and is kind in all of his works. Simply, the reason why that is in brackets is because not all of the older uh, manuscripts have that verse. Some do and some don't. So they're kind of bracketing and saying, okay, we're not sure if this was in the original or not in the original. Some, Some have it, some don't. Now, I've actually used it as one of my main points, and my next point is that God is faithful. And that comes from right here. Now, regardless of whether this was or not, the rest of the verses all talk about his faithfulness. So it's there. It doesn't matter. Okay? It doesn't subtract from it or add anything that we don't already know. It is interesting, however, in the translation, it says, the Lord is faithful in all of his words and is kind in all of his works. Another translation says, the Lord is faithful to his promises. Faithful to his words, faithful to his promises. You can see how that fits together there. And, and he is kind to all of his works. And so it's just interesting here what, what, how we see God's faithfulness then is in his promises. Okay, there he fulfills his promises. Uh, we see his faithfulness to his works. And interesting, when you have, if you have the word promise and works here, uh, we think of the rainbow, we think of Noah's ark, of God's promise of never to flood the earth. And so it may be speaking to his faithfulness to his creation outside of, even outside of man. He's faithful to that. But then he goes on and says that he is faithful in verse 14. I already read this. The Lord upholds those who are falling and raises up those who are bowed down or or humble themselves before him. 
And so God is faithful to the vulnerable and the humble. That's how God shows his faithfulness. Now, how does recognizing God's faithfulness, what does that have to do with the kingdom of God? Again, when we see God as king and we put him in his proper place, then it, we experience his faithfulness as we humble ourselves before him. And then we, we take those works and we tell them to other people. And this is how the kingdom of God begins to spread because we experience God's faithfulness and we share that with other people. And then finally, God is righteous. God is righteous. Um, and we, we see this in the text. It declares um, God as righteous. Uh, verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all of his works. Righteousness can refer to God's moral righteousness or it can also refer to his, his righteous acts, his response. And from the text, that's what righteousness we're talking about here. God is righteous in the way that he responds to us. And our response, interesting in the text to me, um, he says, um, verse 19, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. Also, uh, he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. And so our response to a righteous God uh, is to fear him and to love him. Fear is a hard word uh, in the Bible. It's used uh, quite a bit about fearing God as beginning of wisdom. Um, is that a fear of like, oh no, he's going to pounce on me? Or is it respect, loyalty, you know, that, that fear that you have may have for a good role model, father figure where you go, oh, I can't, I respect him and so I don't want to mess up in front of him or her. So what, is that, what does that look like? I think fear, in, in it, when we're talking about God, it's all of these things. It's a proper response to God. So what are some application and action? Before I get that, when we talk about kingdom principles, when we talk about what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like, and we look at the Old Testament, and we look at the laws, and we look at the New Testament, and the church was selling possessions and giving to the needy, and they were caring for the poor, and um, they were upholding people and, and coming alongside people and all this stuff. And the world is saying, what's going on with the racial tensions and all the different things that are going on in the world? What, what does it look like for the church to be the kingdom of God? What, what does the now part look like? We get the not yet, stuff we just can't do, but what does the now look like? And I want to say this, the kingdom of God in us is impossible without a new heart. The issue from the garden all the way through is because our heart is hard. We are separated from God because of our sin. So the first part of our, your kingdom come, it has to be here. It has to be in our heart. And then it goes out from there. The Bible calls that fruit. The fruit comes from good soil, good heart. So how do we get that good heart? Well, first of all, we have to recognize we have a problem. You know, we don't go to the doctor. Well, some of us don't go to the doctor unless we're absolutely forced to go. But we don't usually go unless we, we recognize a problem. 
And we say, doctor, it hurts when I do this, or this isn't working correctly, or, you know, how come it, you know, whatever. And, and now usually the answer is, you're getting older, Dave, uh, whatever. But we go to the doctor because there's an issue. So what is the issue that we are coming to God for? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, when we go back to that garden story and we think about what happened there, it seems kind of long ways away and I don't really get it. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This was good, 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 good. And he created this tree and he said, this is the knowledge of good and evil. And basically he said, you can define good and evil from me or you can take of it and try to decide what good and evil is on your own. And Adam and Eve said, I want to define what's good and evil for me. And you and I do it on a daily basis. I will decide. I will choose. I will figure it out. I will Google it. And I will be my own God. And that heart leads to death. Or we can say, God, I repent. That means to confess our sins, to change, and I I don't want to do this on my own anymore. And the only way we can do that is somebody had to pay the price for our rebellion. And that was done on the cross. Jesus died for our sins. He took our place. So that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. God's kingdom will never come until it comes in your heart and you confess him as Lord and Savior and say, I will follow you. So the application, first, make sure you're in the kingdom. But our application on the notes there is we're encouraging you to pray through the Lord's Prayer. And this week you're focusing on the kingdom come. Um, And I think as we do that, we are praying that God would reveal where our kingdom, little k, is in conflict with his kingdom, big K. There's times where I've got a kingdom, It's called the kingdom of Dave, and I rule it. But the kingdom of Dave is often in conflict with the kingdom of God. And I need to let go of my kingdom. And so I need to repent and turn to the kingdom of God. And if you want to learn about the kingdom of God, you've got to spend time in the book and learn what God's kingdom looks like. Let's pray. God, we do pray your kingdom come, and we recognize that we are in need of a new king in our hearts and in our land. We are in need of rescue from the hate and the pain of a world that says, I will decide what is good and evil. And if we're honest, we need to be rescued from ourselves because we constantly want to rule our own little kingdom. So when we pray your kingdom come, we pray that we would submit to your rule in our hearts, that we would believe in the power that comes from living in an upside down world, putting you first, and that we would constantly submit ourselves to the principles that are in your word that would lead us to live today as if your kingdom is already here.
Help us to live in this tension of now and not yet. Help us to have faith in what is to come. And may that faith drive us to love others the way that you have loved us. God, may your kingdom come in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.